there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. Happy Pride Month, everybody. Um, I have a special Pride Month episode for you this week. My friend and past podcast guest, Stephen Rains, um, he asked me to audio edit a project he had been working on about the late, great singer Sylvester, specifically Sylvester's teen years in Los Angeles. Um, I really enjoyed learning about the subject matter, and it turned out so well that I asked Stephen if we could use it on Dennis Anyone, and he said yes. So the next voice you hear will be Stephen Rains, and the show is called Shaped by Sylvester, Tiki Spills the Tea. I hope you enjoy it, and have a happy pride. Hi, welcome to Shape by Sylvester, Tiki Spills the Tea. I'm Stephen Rains, the inaugural Poet Laureate of West Hollywood. I've been fascinated with the singer Sylvester ever since I first heard his music. He rose to fame in San Francisco, but a lot of people don't know that he was born and raised in Los Angeles. And as a proud Angelino, I was interested to learn how Los Angeles shaped him and how he shaped Los Angeles. So I thought I'd start with a man who wrote the book on Sylvester, literally. Josh Gamson. He's the author of the 2005 book, The Fabulous Sylvester. Let's see, how do I describe him? Sylvester was most commonly known as a disco star, but that's, that's how most people know him through particular kinds of music. And that, that music was an important part of who he was and an important part of his legacy that he left this kind of um, set of very danceable, very queer sounding songs. Um, for us to enjoy and live to. And what great songs they were. Dance, Disco Heat, You Make Me Feel, and my personal favorite, Do You Want to Funk? As a person, I'd say he was someone who was pursuing freedom and fabulousness as much as he could everywhere he could. So he was a... Uh, cross-dressing some of the time, androgynous, out there, black, queen, musician, singer, singing in falsetto. Everything about him was different from the norm, and he used all of that as the basis for his, his own freedom and fabulousness and stardom. Josh Gamson's world couldn't be any more different than Sylvester's. Josh is an academic and associate dean at the University of San Francisco. So why did he want to write a book about a disco star? Sylvester just kind of came to me, and there was no real rhyme or reason. I just had the thought in my head and started to look around to see if anybody had told his story and found that no one had and was a bit disturbed by that <laughs> and for a while thought well you know why would I do it it doesn't really fit me I'm I'm an academic I'm white you know I kept finding reasons not to do it and they kept getting kind of shot down and um, and he kept staying in my head there was an intellectual and personal appeal to his story because I'm interested in people who um, kind of defy categories, transcend categories, are successful on the basis of things that other people stigmatize and other people see as negative and as, um, as 
limitations on the person. And somehow here's this guy who took all of these things that the society thinks are failings and embarrassments that many people think of as obstacles to success. And he made them the basis for international superstardom. And then there was this more mystical side of just like he came and wouldn't leave. And eventually um, I think I figured out, you know, sometimes you just gotta, gotta jump in something I learned from him. Speaking of jumping in, I want to jump in to the story of how Sylvester became Sylvester. It all starts with a little boy in Watts that everyone called Dooney. Dooney was Sylvester's nickname as a kid. So it's not entirely clear. Most likely the, the nickname comes from Junior. He was Sylvester Junior. So it's the kind of nickname that you get when you're called Junior. So Dooney was um, a little uh, L.A. kid, um, just a little church boy, and then a little Queenie church boy, and then a um, full-on fabulous teenage part-time drag queen. When Sylvester was still Dooney and a teenager, he fell in with a crowd of uh, black drag queens who called themselves eventually the Discotes, D-I-S-Q-U-O-T-A-Y-S. And that really was his tribe. That was kind of where he and they tried out being as free as they could possibly be, um, just in defiance, sort of matter-of-fact defiance of um, what the culture around them told them was uh, acceptable and possible for them uh, and they they dressed up and had parties to find out what these parties were like I turned to an actual surviving discotheque Miss Tiki who still lives here in the Los Angeles area we had formed a little clique there was about 12 or 13 of us that looked like women we would go out and go to straight clubs so we called ourselves the discotheques. So whenever we gave parties, we would uh, wait till the clubs were closed like at two or either go to schools and pass out little flyers. And that's when, uh, in other words, it was like turning LA out. They, they, people would come to the parties because the parties were so outstanding. My grandmother used to call them, she called them vampire parties. She said, oh, you're going to one of them vampire parties. Parties that they would start after the clubs were closed at two until the sun would rise like up in five, whatever. L.A. was one loose town. Talking to Miss Tiki during lockdown when there were no parties anywhere made me especially intrigued about these parties. How did they work exactly? We'd meet up at some house wherever it was, and it would be like a similar line. Dooney and them would be doing hair, and Monique would be doing the fashions, you know, have it, and we'd put the fashions on, they'd put the wigs on, and by the time we'd get to the party, everybody was all, you know, foo-fooed up. We were the fashion place because, like, Vogue magazine or Twiggy or whatever, we had girls that could do makeup, could do hair, and they could cut wigs, blunt cuts, and whatever, you know, at that period. Uh, time that we were going through and we were just outstanding everybody wanted to be like us 
And I don't know where we got all that money because I know when we'd go to work every weekend, we'd be running to down to the garment district buying clothes and buying shoes. And for a two-day event, like on Fridays and Saturdays, was the, when the parties were given. And they were in different locations all over the city. You know, they would give out alert where the party was going to be on that weekend, and everybody would flourish to the apartment. But see, in those days, you could rent an apartment like $165 and $5 for the key. And there would be nothing in there but that. And they would have the music blasting and cars would pull up and, you know, all out and down the street and all. Oh, it was something else. The discotheques were living without any apology for who they were. And that's a really hard thing to find. It's really hard to find an environment as a, as a queer kid, as a gender nonconforming person in, you know, in the 1960s very hard to find a place where you can actually have that experience of living individually and collectively without apology for who you are and to be in a situation where you're being shit on in most other environments especially if you're living out loud you're being shit on and um, you get this kind of training in the disc they got this kind of they kind of seemed like they were training each other without thinking about it like that's not what they were trying to do but they were living their lives and in doing that, training training themselves to be um, sort of fearless and fabulous. And that is something that Sylvester took with him. It's a taste of a kind of freedom that I think Sylvester took with him and wanted to provide and that you can hear in his music all the way through. So how did Sylvester fit into this fabulous world of the discotheques? First of all, he was considered the most ridiculous of them all. And ridiculous was a very high compliment in that crowd. He was um, known for his kind of um, uh, beauty treatment that he could give other queens, and he was known for um, his entrances and his ability to capture the spotlight at a party, and for his um, sort of sing singing. Over the music, there are many stories of him um, sort of doing sing-offs with other queens at a party over the music. They called it Sissy Kung Fu, which I've always adored. And he was known for his big feet. As you can tell from Miss Tiki, everything about this world was larger than life, even their first meeting. When I first met Sylvester, I met him at Ed James' party. And when I was in the restroom, uh, Sylvester came in and he was in, in uh, female impersonation, you know, in drag. I see when I first seen Sylvester, Sylvester had on a black form-fitting dress with a French roll, wearing a French roll hairdo. And at the time, I was mainly like a gay child, gay uh, little youngster. I was alarmed when, the, when this woman came in the bathroom and, and Sylvester said, don't be alarmed. I'm, I'm just like you. And I said, oh, my goodness. So he took a look at me and says, oh, you're a cute little son. You would look real good. And I said, I'd never put on women's clothes, but I was thinking about it. And that's how it came about. We were just kids. You know what I'm talking about? He was a little older than me, but I was so glad to be around my kind because there was a straight world and there was a discotheque world. And it was, you know, it was like this. It was a community of kids. When they would give parties or whatever, he'd sit on the stereo and, oh, and, and beat the tambourines and count. 
I really enjoyed him because he was like the entertaining of the party. You know, like ding, 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 ding. You know, you had the person that, that keeps the party going. And he was for like the life of the party. Sylvester's talent wasn't just winning people over. He also had a talent for making people over. When he uh, started me out, when I first got into female attire, he put me in it. And at the time I had a cold and my voice was kind of rough. And he said, don't worry, just, you'll be okay, just be quiet. And he had gave me the name. First, I was Jeanette Washington, supposed to be a girl from Pasadena. They were going to pass me off for Zach. And for a while, I would go to the parties, and I was known as Jeanette Washington. And Sylvester said, I don't like that name. So one day, we were over at his um, mother's house, and we were watching TV. The show Adventures in Paradise with Troy Donahue and him. And the name of the boat was a cheeky. So he kept looking at the, at the TV and I, he said, that's it. I said, what's what? He said, your name is Miss Tiki. I said, oh, no, that's ridiculous. So when I went, when we went to the next party, he told everybody name was Tiki. And I said, uh. So everybody clicked into that name Tiki and I could not get rid of that name. As you can hear, Miss Tiki's lived a big life and is a compelling storyteller. She really deserves her own Netflix special. I was fascinated to hear more about what her life was like as a trans teen in the 1960s in Los Angeles. When we came up, female impersonation was illegal. They called it harboring a disguise. You could go to jail for that if you had an eyebrow pencil, you had earrings on. When you see the police come, you'd have to snatch it off, you know. And hide. In order to go to the party, my uh, grandmother, I would hide my wigs and stuff would be over, you know, at where the club, where the party was going to be. So at 11 o'clock when the airplanes would go over, see, I lived near the airport on Century. I'd wait for the jet to come over and it would make so much noise over my house, I would sneak out my bedroom window. <laughs> and at 5 o'clock in the morning, in order to get back in the house, I had to wait for the 5 o'clock jet to come and I would ease back in. But my grandmother worked me one when I went out. And when I came back to come back in the window, the window was locked. My grandmother had nailed the window down. And I had to knock on the door. And she said, look, whatever you do, you leave out this front door. You don't leave me in the house with no windows open. And that was the end of that trade. My grandmother was the type, she was a Capricorn. They are very inquisitive. And I would... I remember I bought a Tina Turner wig because at that time it was like Cher and we had long hair. And I bought this wig or Pico, a human hair wig, and I had it in between my mattress. And my grand, I thought that I had hid that. And my grandmother went in my room and found that wig. She didn't take it out and show me. She cut it into four equal pieces and put it back under the mattress. So when I got ready to go to the party, I went and pulled you know, pulling, get ready to pull the hair out. And I got one piece. I said, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. Uh, she had cut my wig. She says, uh-uh. She said, you thought I don't know nothing. She said, no, you sit down. We're going to have a talk about this. That talk was, um, it's like when, when you're undercover and you're hiding something and your parent, and you can't lie about it because it's right there in front of your face. And she wouldn't call my mother. My mother and him came over and sat down and we all had a discussion. See what I mean about the Netflix special? Maybe it should be a series. TK has enough stories to fill several seasons. 
see, at that time, I was also sneaking, taking hormones. We were the first girls taking hormones. A few girls and I, we would go up to Hollywood and get get our hormone shots. And I, it got to the point, see, I was in high school still. When I got to high school, I had breasts and I couldn't take gym or PE because I'd have to wear a band around the breast. And uh, the teachers kept asking me, well, you have math, history, da-da-da, but I don't see no physical education on here. And I called my mother, I said, oh, no, no, no. And see, at that time, they were, you had to have certain haircuts, and we would hold our hair back and braid it and tuck it under so they couldn't tell that we had hair. Oh, it was something else. Because at that time, when we came up, in order to have breasts, when we didn't have breasts, we would use water balloons or, or surgical gloves and put water in them. And you'd have to make sure that you let the air out or else, you know, you hear a swishing sound <laughs> in your breath. You'd be dancing to a record and you'd hear the I said, oh, no, 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 Galena, mm-mm. And in a tale that's as old as Hollywood, Miss Tiki and her friends found a doctor that could hook them up with the drugs they needed in exchange for something he wanted from them. Ah, this doctor named Dr. Gene up in Hollywood was giving it to us, you know, on the side. We'd go up there, but he was one of those kind of guys that he wanted certain little things from you in order to get the shot, and you'd give him that, and he would give you the shot. You know, it was like this turning the trick. You know, you'd go there for one thing, and you'd get something for it. You know what I'm talking about? Plus, he would give you a few little little extra coins on the side. So it was like going to the candy shop, you know, where we'll go up and get our hormones, you know, da-da-da-da-da. When someone does make a series about teenage Miss Tiki, at least one episode has to center around her hair. I dyed my hair blonde. So my other girlfriend named Fran, she said, that's when they had color combs or the spray that you could spray in your hair. So at night, before I'd go to bed, I would roll my hair and with this black head rag and you couldn't see my hair. So my grandma, you know, she didn't pay no attention to it. She'd get up, give me my breakfast and then go back to bed. I'd comb the hair out blonde and go to school. So the principal asked me, says, you know what? Does your, does your mother know that your hair is blonde? I said, mm-hmm. So I'm out on out in the yard with the rest of my friends. They said, you have a, uh, you have to report to the principal's office. And I go to the principal's office. So when he got through talking to me, I sat down in, in the little room. My grandmother comes in, walks by me, and, you know, doesn't pay any attention because she doesn't see me. And she goes in, he tells her, you know, your child has blonde hair. And my grandma said, no, my child doesn't have blonde hair. She said, tell, tell uh, your child to come in the, in the room. When I came in the room, my grandmother says, oh, no, where did you get blonde hair? When we left it, my grandma says, don't worry about it, tomorrow we won't have blonde hair. She took me over to my stepfather's house, and he took me to the barber's house and had all my hair cut off. Uh, I just cried. I looked at him with the evil look. I could, if I could, if, you know how looks can kill. So that was a traumatic little scene. Tiki's grandmother had enough and sent Tiki to live with her mother. But our Teenage Tiki series has a happy season finale because Tiki graduates from high school and she does it her way. I graduated in female attire. My mother had an idea, but my stepfather, he didn't know. 
But my sisters and brothers, they all knew. My sister, they were my little allies. So that day of graduation, I went away and got into regalia, into drag. And when we got to the high school, you know, like they lined you up, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, something. And the teacher kept looking, she said, boy, girl, girl, boy. He said, wait a minute. It was too late when they start, you know, when they call you out for your name, you know, come get your diploma. So when they called me out, my sister was in orchestra and my brother and they were in orchestra. And they knew. And my stepfather and mother and everybody was out there in the audience. And when they called the name, I could see my name was Warren McGuffey. Mm-hmm. And when they called Warren McGuffey, the principal with the diploma, out I stepped. Some of the boys said, hey, I remember that girl at the party. Was she in your class? You know, they were trying to figure out, did I go to continuation school or regular school? This girl wasn't on regular campus, but I seen her at these parties. So when it came out, I'm talking about the whole audience, it was disrupted. And the principal, when he got ready to hand me my uh, diploma, he acted like he wasn't going to let it go. He was so confused. And I had to snatch my diploma from him. And I'm talking about the whole, all the girls stood up, they applauded me. I got a standing ovation. (laughs) Hearing Miss Tiki's story about showing up at her graduation as female, I'm just knocked out by the courage on display. And Sylvester biographer Josh Gamson is right there with me. You know, I, I think of the discotheques as really, you know, they weren't trying to do anything that was formative or, you know, political. They were trying to be grand and fabulous. And in doing that, they really taught each other how to live freely and how to be seen. You know, a lot of it was also for the discotheques. A lot of it was around being seen and you know, being admired for, for what you're presenting to the, whether it's at a party or in a house party or you know, with a couple of friends or waiting on the street or you know, making an entrance to a party. It was about that moment where you were seen. And I remember a story about Sylvester, I think this was with his friend Duchess, where um, they were out at a restaurant in full drag. They were out at a restaurant and the host wanted to seat them in the back, you know, by a, by a bush or something. And Sylvester was like, no, honey, we're not sitting there. You're going to put us right here out in front. You know, we came, we live to be seen and we're not accepting that kind of push to be invisible and demeaned in that way. If you can carry that core with you, the way Sylvester did, you can transmit that to others. It's a kind of um, something that he preached his whole life, really. This is a guy who's saying, just occupy your space, you know, just be free, be fabulous. Sylvester eventually moved to San Francisco, where he joined the drag troupe, the Coquettes, and then rose to fame as a disco star. But that wasn't the end of his connection with Miss Tiki. They had one more magical moment together in Hollywood. Way after when I got back, when I moved to West Hollywood, I'm sitting in the house one day and, you know, uh, remember the circus disco? 
Yes, of course. On he said, oh, there's going to be this person appearing, Sylvester. I said, wait a minute. That's my, that's my, um, that's my baby. That's my sister. I said, I bought a ticket. I said, I'm going to go see my friend. So as I'm sitting in the audience, Sylvester was jumping around singing, you make me feel mighty, mighty real. I said, go girl. And he looked down and he seen me and he stopped in the middle and he said, when you get through, usher her to the back. Oh, I was so glad because, you know what, it, it brought back something because for him to remember me like that, I'm talking to a crowd of people and to look out now it's because he was back on home base in California, you know, talking about L.A. Because you could see that look on his face like, oh. And then he went back to performing and he couldn't wait to get back to it. You could see in his face, I'll be so glad when I'm through singing. Not want to run and see somebody that knows me, that knows me. I'm not Sylvester, I'm still me. I'm a real person. And when I went back there, oh, we just laughed and talked. He said, oh, we have to go out and the da-da-da. And we were going to get together. We changed numbers. But we didn't get together, and he went back to Frisco. And next thing I know, I had seen that he had passed. Sylvester died of AIDS in 1988 at the age of 41. But he lives on in his music and the people whose lives he influenced, like Miss Tiki. He made me. But whatever I am now, when I look back at it, I owe him a world of gratitude because he made me who I am. Sylvester's career is a testament to the power of self-creation, which he learned from the discotheques. The discotheques were all about sort of you make yourself up and you then inhabit this thing that you've made up, both in literal makeup on the face, but you know, you make up this, the person that you want to be and then you step into that light that you've created, which I love. And again, it's something that Sylvester took with him all the way through. You imagine yourself a star, and then you step into that spotlight that you've imagined for yourself. And for Miss Tiki, this process of becoming yourself is something that's continued even up until today. I'll be 73, fixing to go into surgery through this whole vicious cycle and whatever. I'll be who I'm supposed to be. But I'm not dumb knowing that I had a past. You know what I'm talking about? Since our interview, Tiki has had her surgery. She's recovering and quite happy. Yes, Stephen, it's Tiki calling. I'm calling from the hospital. Everything has been taken care of. And once I get released, I'll give you a call. Bye. To me, it's another example of Sylvester's message of being yourself and living authentically. I like to imagine that Sylvester is somewhere out there looking down at Miss Tiki and smiling. God bless him and let him rest in peace. And eventually I'll get there and we'll all be together. Because quite a few of the other discotheques are already there. <laughs> so we'll have another party. This project was supported by a grant from the City of West Hollywood as part of their One City, One Pride project. Thank you to Mike Che for all of your help. I'm your host, Stephen Rains. Special thanks to Dennis Hensley for editing the project and to Matt Zarley for the use of his song, Trust Me. An extra special thanks goes to Josh Damson and Miss Tiki for sharing their stories and helping to make sure that the legend of Sylvester lives on. Sylvester.